you know, as we bring it closer to home, and, you know, anytime you say any of these kind of things, people read them politically. Don't read it politically, but it's just this. We are averaging almost two mass shootings a day in our country. A mass shooting, the most typical definition is four people are injured or killed apart from the shooter. And we're averaging almost two a day. They're so common now that they don't make the news anymore. It used to be when a mass shooting happened, the whole country's like, this is unbelievable. But now it's got to be, let me say this, but it's, in a sense it's, it's true. It's got to be a whole lot of people or it's got to be kids. Otherwise, we don't even pay attention to it. And it is horrific when it's children. I mean, I'm not belittling that in any way. But, but these are, in some ways, for, for many people, these could be dark times. You think about the, the, the number of people that are suffering now through things like this. Um, we see it in, in just so many things. It, it can be, we can look back and go, this, this has been, a, in many ways, a dark year. And, uh, and what's going to make next year better? I mean, the Middle East is still going to go on. Ukraine is going to go on. All these other things that are they're still going to go on. And so we need light in dark times. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about when Jesus said, I am the light. I am the light of the world. He made a statement that can be life-changing for us. And so as we look ahead, what can we do? And the one thing we know we can do is we can do what we were commanded to do, like in, in, in the book of John or in 1 John, walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in the light. So we're going to look at just, really, just one verse. Um, I have a book. You know, when we talk about the statements Jesus made, the I am's Jesus made, we did a study on that a while back. I, I have a book um, and, it, and it's, it's one of these books that's very academic. It's a tough read. And so I don't, I'm not necessarily encouraging you to get it and read it. But it's called Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World called, uh, by a man named Larry Hurtado. I don't, he's not a Christian. He just, he's, he's a historian. And, and he looks at this, as far as I know, I guess I should say that, as far as I know. He looks at this and he, and he talks about how the, the gospel message and the Christian church that followed that gospel message radically changed the world. They were radically different. And the thing that I take from that is, is we're supposed to be radically different. We're supposed to be the kind of people that people look at and say, wow, what's up with that? What's going on here? I may not understand it, but that looks good. And so the early church he says, life was incredibly difficult. This, he, he writes, why was it difficult? Because it was expected that people would have their own gods. They'd be willing, even if people had their own gods, they'd be willing to show honor to all the gods. Nearly every home, every city, every guild, every, including the empire itself, every, every, everyone had their own gods. You couldn't go to a meal in a large home or a public event without being expected to offer a sacrifice to the gods, some sort of honor, whether it's just a pinch of incense, to the God of that home, to the God of that feast, to the God of that guild, whatever it was, you were expected to do that. You couldn't participate in commerce in any, any city in the Roman Empire, even a town, unless you offered incense to the gods at the beginning of the day in the market. To, do, to not do this was highly insulting. 
to the house, to the community. And it was actually dangerous because it was thought that such behavior would make the gods angry. Indeed, it was seen as treason not to honor the gods of the empire on, whom, on whose divine authority its legitimacy was based. Christians, however, saw these rituals and these tributes and these offerings as idolatry. They were committed to worshiping God exclusively. Can you see how that created a huge culture clash? You're going against, you, but you're not just going against us. You're making the gods angry at us. We're gonna pay the price for your, your, you know, your stupidness, your silliness, your idolatry, the way you do this. And yet, Christianity spread like wildfire. It spread through all ethnic groups. Most believers were former pagans who suddenly, after their confer, conversion, they refused to honor the gods. And this created huge social problems making it disruptive in society and impossible for Christians to be accepted at most public gatherings. If a family member or a servant in the family became a Christian, they suddenly would refuse to honor the household gods. And this was seen as subversive to the social order. In fact, we see this. We see this played out in the book of Acts. You know, they accuse Paul. They say, these people, these people are turning the world upside down. They're messing everything up. Our whole social fabric is gonna come apart because of these people. They are a threat to our culture and to our way of life. Followers of Jesus, were they were looked down upon because they, they thought, oh, you, you think you're too good for everyone else. So why did anyone become a Christian? Why did Christianity grow so exponentially? What did Christianity offer? that was so much greater than the cost. And he lists three things. I just have them all right here. There was a unique social aspect that was totally countercultural. Christians forbade the, the early forms of abortion that were going on in the Roman Empire and the practice of infant exposure, where they would just take an infant out and leave it outside to die if they didn't want it or if it was, un and it was common. We have a letter from a Roman soldier in Carthage at war, writing back to his wife, who's heard about the women of Carthage, and she's worried that her husband is gonna cheat on her. And he writes back a love letter. And I wanna tell you, it's, it's a beautiful letter of his undying love. You know, she's brighter than the sun. He uses all this flowery language to, to tell her how much he loves her. And then he says, and as for the child, she's pregnant. If it's a girl, put her out. And that's not unacceptable. That's totally normal. They, if you didn't want them, you just put them out. The, uh, the, the houses of prostitution would grab up sometimes the girls. Um, sometimes just wild animals would come in. They'd leave them by the edge of the woods. And then Christians started coming along. And the Christians picked up those babies because it was wrong because they were created in the image of God, because we don't care what all those gods say is okay. We're different. And so it was a unique social aspect, and it was countercultural. They were countercultural sexually. They abstained from sex outside of marriage in a society that, for men, sex with prostitutes, sex with slaves, sex with children, children was totally okay. 
And Christians said, no, it's not. No, it's not. That empowered women in a way that was nowhere else in the world. And yet these Christians also were unusually generous with their money, particularly to the poor and to the needy. Not just those of their own family or their own tribe, their racial group. They worked outside of those groups. Christian communities were multi-ethnic and multi-status because they decided that Christ was their common identity, not what society says. They created a diversity which was unprecedented unprecedented in any religion. And finally, Christians believed in non-retaliation, in forgiving their enemies. So this was very unique. Second one, a direct personal love relationship with the creator God. In those days, and, and you guys, we've talked about this, but in those days, the gods, they didn't care about people. You just gave them something to placate them, to keep them happy, to, to, to try to bribe them into blessing you. It was just all about giving money offerings and food offerings and grain offerings just to keep the gods happy. We, we, we've seen there a couple of the temples that have been unearthed, and you can see how that whole thing worked. There'd be a temple, and the people would come in, and they, they, they'd petition, and a priest would come out, and it would hear their petition, and then it would say, you know, the God is going to answer you within two months. What are you giving? So then they'd give money, whatever. And then there was all kinds of little businesses set up outside of a temple for people to stay, to live, because they were going to wait for two months for the answer. And then they'd get their answer, whatever it was. And the whole thing was to bribe these gods into doing what they want. The idea of a personal relationship with God was hilarious to them. It was ridiculous. It was laughable. Third thing, the assurance of eternal life. All other religions offered some version of a salvation through human effort. You had to work hard. But the gospel gives us the basis of full assurance for salvation right now because it's by grace, not works. It's nothing that we do. It's Christ's work for us. And so the early church believed this. They believed it. It, it changed the way they lived because they believed it. And I want us to see these claims made by Jesus. If you believe them, they have to change the way you live. And they will. They will. Just like with the early church. And so we're looking at one particular claim. This claim by Jesus to be the light. And here it is in John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I am the light. If you follow me, you will walk in the light. Now, what's going on when he says this? They're in the Feast of Tab the Tabernacles. They've been, uh, they've been celebrating how God led them out of bondage in Egypt into freedom in the promised land. And specifically, too, they emphasize God's provision to them in the wilderness, how God took care of them who gave, and gave them uh, life, especially water. There was, water was integral. It was really a part of the ceremony. Uh, it was integrated into the ceremony, maybe that too, I don't know. It's going to bother, bother me for a number of days. Water was important. Every day in, in, of a seven-day period, they would pour water out, finalizing in the last day when they would get this water uh, from a pool, and they'd come, and the, the whole city would celebrate. 
And, and this is where this comes in earlier, just earlier in this passage, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world, whoever follows me. Oops, not that one. Verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. And then on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water, will flow from within them. So he's talking, he's using this theme that's going on there. And part of the theme was that it was this water theme that was going on, but also there was a huge light theme. They would, they would light these huge, this huge candelabra and uh, it, would, it would brighten up the sky. It was supposed to be so big. Uh, let's see, I'll give you just a, here's a picture of the temple. All right, this is a temple that could hold thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And when you get to this inner portion, There's a place right there in the middle where the offerings were taken and there was a huge candelabra there when they were celebrating this this celebration. And on the last night of the celebration, there would be feasting and there would be be dancing. And and then at the end of the night, the candelabra would be extinguished, right? And so this is what's going on there. And then in in verse uh, 20 here, I'll just read it to you. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And these words were saying, I am the light. So think about what's happening. They had this huge celebration. It's water and and ending with this great time at at the end, well into the night, and then it's over and the lights start getting extinguished. Yesterday, my wife and I were sitting there and I said, it's time to take down the lights. And she said, no, not the Christmas lights. Let's wait till Valentine's Day. And I'm like, no, you know, it's about time to take the lights. All our kids had come, our house was full and it was noisy and fights were breaking out. It was wonderful. It was just a great time. And then little by little, Wednesday, one left, Thursday, two more left, Friday, one left, Saturday, one left, and last night, I'm just like, well, it's us. It's us. It's time for the lights. You ever get that? I remember when I was a little kid, when my parents would start taking the lights down off the Christmas tree, that was the most depressing time. It had been so much fun. Christmas, toys, yay, me. It's all about me. I love this. And then the lights are gone. It's over. The house is darker. (sighs) Yeah? I feel that way a little bit today. They're all, but it's more about them all being gone. But it's that whole thing. That's what's going on there. Think about this. They're taking the lights down. It's over. The celebration is over. Each night, they would light this thing and it would be bright and there would be music that would be played and there would be celebration. And, and, and we have it that some people say you could see the light of the temple for miles. And they were, they were glorying in this light because it recalled to them the Shekinah glory, the light of God that led them through, the, through, through Egypt, out of Egypt and, and, and through the wilderness. And now they're extinguishing the lights. And it's kind of depressing because the Shekinah glory used to be in the temple, but now it's gone. Ezekiel said it's Ichabod. It's gone. The glory has departed. And so... They celebrate the light and then it's over and it reminds them of the fact that they have sinned and the light has left. And Jesus stands up. And Jesus, when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. He's saying, no, no, understand this. I'm the Shekinah. I'm the light of God. I, he's saying, I am God. I am the source of ultimate light and life. And light always reveals. It always reveals what is true. When my kids were younger one time, I had this brilliant idea that, you know, ever have these brilliant ideas, you can do something for your kids and it takes so much more work than you anticipated that you start regretting that you ever had that idea and you want to quit halfway through. I found, I found glow in the dark paint, right? And so I painted their ceiling black. And then I used glow in the dark paint and stick on stars to put up stars and constantly, you know, there's whatever, Icarus, and there's this, and that, whatever that they are. I don't even know what they are. You know, the, the big pot and pan thing. All those things. I put those all up. And so my kids would love it because they would, they would have their lights on. When it was time to get ready to go to bed, it was in the girls' room, they'd close the door, turn off all the lights, lay on the floor, and look at the stars. And, and every once in a while, you know, the boys, they would open it up and go, you guys are stupid for doing this. This is really dumb. And the girls would say, close the door. You're ruining the darkness. But think about this. That's what happens with light. No one ever says in a lit room, close the door. The darkness is seeping in. That doesn't happen. Light seeps into darkness. And Jesus says, I'm going to the dark places to bring light. I'm gonna light up your life. You walk in my life. You walk in me. You'll be in the light. You'll see things for the way they are, the way they really are. And so he says to them, he says, we have the background. Now there's this audacity of this claim. In John 1, 4 and 5, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Darkness does not overcome light. Light overcomes darkness. And he's making these incredible claims. I am God. I am light. He's pushing us. He's pushing us. Do you believe it? This light changed the world. I mean, you think about what it was to be a Christian in those days. Everything was against you. The economy, the greatest economy in the world at that time was against you. You know, the social structure of the world in that time was against you. Everything was against you. And yet it spread and it spread like wildfire because they believed Jesus, that he was the light. He makes this incredible claim. The third thing is, there's some implications to this claim. When he says, I'm the light of the world, he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's a following that's involved. That's why we're doing these three, these three groups a week. Why? So we can learn to walk in the light. How do we do that? How does that work? How do we place ourselves in a position where God begins to show things? God begins to light things up. It's not that we're doing it and making it happen. It's that we're making ourselves available to God to work, and he does. And he says, follow me. That word follow is a pretty strong word. It's often used for a soldier when a leader is turning to go into battle, and he says, follow me. 
following. So following can be a, a matter of life and death. It's often used the idea of a total life commitment in a marriage or something like that. It's total. It's total commitment. It's often used in talking about a wise man or a rabbi where someone says, I will follow you. What does that mean? I will let you teach me. I will take the wisdom that you impart to me and I will apply it to my life. So it's someone who listens and is willing to be taught. And these are the implications of that word. He says, I want you to follow me. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So there's some implications here. Let's think about this for a second. First of all, one implication. We're to be people of integrity because everything's revealed in the light. We're to be the same person when no one's looking. That's a tall ask right there, isn't it? That's a hard thing. And he says, you can do it because I will always be with you. You will be in the light. We are to live attractively because now we, we are a part of the light of the world. Following Christ, we are to be these people who are winsome, these people who are attractive, not physically attractive, these people who are attractive in, in the way we behave, in the way we talk to people, the way we treat people. This is what we are to be. There's no room for hatefulness and ugliness and mockery as a follower of Jesus Christ. How you treat people, especially those who don't agree with you, or those maybe that you have power or control over, or how you handle trouble in your life. These are the implications. Here's another one. We are to live courageously because when you are the light, some people react negatively to it. When you're walking in the light, some people don't like what it reveals. When I uh, was younger, just say that, I, uh, I worked as a, a doorman for a hotel in Washington, D.C. And um, so I, my, my, my wage was tips, basically. And uh, each week, I would report my tips to the IRS. And I'm not trying to put anybody here who works for tips in a difficult situation. I just believed at the time that was right for me to declare what I made that week. Um, uh, Dorman, bell, bellmen, not bellboys, bellmen, um, never, never report all their tips. Never. Because I made a lot of money. <laughs> I made more money I've ever made in my life working for tips at a hotel. And so after a while, some of them got together and came to me and said, hey, what are you trying to do? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. They said, you're getting us in trouble. We're, we, might get, we might get audited because of you. And I said, what? What do you mean? And they were like, dude, you declare all your tips. I'm like, man, I got to. I got to. I just believe it's right. And they're like, if one of us gets audited, we're taking it out on you. And I was just like, oh, it's the Bellman underworld here that I'm starting to mess with, you know? All these, all, all these guys in fancy uniforms that carry crowbars in their back pocket or something. But I, I just believed it was right for me. I just believed it was right. And 
if we decide to live in the light, there will be times where people will react negatively. That's why, that's why we're told, insofar as you can do it, be at peace with everyone. Because already the scripture writer understands, it's not going to be all the time. You can't be at peace with everyone because some people hate the light. Some people hate the light. Uh, another implication, we are to live hopefully because it's going to get better. I mean, this life is a process. You know, we're talking about Jesus being the life of the world. And we're basically what's going on here is that outside of Jesus, outside of a relationship with Jesus, we're outside of the way we're designed to be. We're not fulfilling what we were created to fulfill. And, and in, a, in a sense, apart from Jesus, we're kind of unformed, we're unmade, we're, we're not right. But when Christ comes in, he begins to form us to make us more like himself. If you have a background in the church, this process is called sanctification. We are being formed. You know, it's, it's like a metamorphosis. That's why I love Power Rangers when they say it's morphing time. I think that should be the cry of the church. You know, it's morphing. I don't know. I missed this before. Nobody took it up much, but I think I should say it's morphing time. And you should say, we will morph indeed. And then we, something like that. A little back and forth. I like it. I like it. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't like this, this, this formation thing. It's too slow. I, God, I am not, I don't feel like I'm, I, it's not happening quick enough. I want it to happen quicker in my life. If you're feeling that way, let me encourage you with something. Just think about this. We're talking about accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's your spiritual birth, right? Think about when you're born physically. You're, you don't come out of the womb and do push-ups, right? You're 99% cartilage, and you got a hole in the top of your head that if someone pushes on it, it's a really bad thing, all right? So, so what happens? After a little bit, you begin to crawl. After a little bit, you're able to feed yourself. After longer, you're able to walk. After longer, you're able to run. We're being formed by Jesus Christ. We can have hope in that. This is a process, and it has ups and downs in the process, but the ups and the downs are being used to form us to become more like his son, Jesus. And this is what happens as we endeavor to walk in the light. When we follow the light of life, the Bible teaches us that we are moving out of darkness into light. You need to be moving. It may be slow, but you need to be moving. Because if you're not, you're not fulfilling what you've been created to do. Too many times we're just moving things around in our lives, hoping they'll give us what we need. And they may give us joy. They may give us happiness for a very little while, but ultimately they fail. And you'll keep bumping into the truth along the way. The truth will keep telling you you need to be in the light. There's something more. It's better than this. God has more for you than this. Let me give you an example. Um, who was it? Joe Marks told me about this a long time ago. I think I showed it once in church a long time ago. But there was an interview in 2005 with Tom Brady. He had just won his third Super Bowl, and he was on 60 Minutes. And it got real personal. But let me just say this. There's about 7 billion people on this earth, probably more than that now. Of that 7 billion people, you have 10 quarterbacks in the NFL who are not journeyman type of quarterbacks. 
And of that 10, you have five, basically, that franchises have said, we're going to make you our franchise quarterback. And of that five, maybe one will be considered in, in, in the talk of the greatest or great ones. Tom Brady is probably the greatest quarterback who's ever lived. And he's wealthier than you are. He's better looking than you are. He is living out in many ways, especially men, he's living out most of what we wish could happen to us in our lives. They're gonna build a statue of him outside Gillette Stadium. No one is building a statue of you outside your workplace, right? <laughs> 10 years after you're gone, not gonna happen. You might be salesman of the year. They're still not gonna build a statue of you. Not only that, there's no 12-year-old kid right now who's gonna win an award in 15 years and go after watching him make market plans and going to all the right camps, I realize I could be a great salesman too. That's not gonna happen, right? No one's watching you on a global stage and saying, wow, he's incredible. But here's a man, he has the American dream in his lap. In 2005, he was 27 years old. And the, the uh, 60 Minutes reporter was asking about his life and he just said, I realized there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. And he said, well, what do you think? He goes, I wish I knew. And then he said it again, like emphasis, and you're like, whoa, weird, this got real serious. And he said, I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew what was more than this. Because this isn't enough. That's what he's saying. This isn't enough. And eternity, you know, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God puts eternity in the hearts of men. And only something eternal can fill that hole. And that is why Tom Brady, when he had three, three rings and he had a Victoria's Secret model wife, said, oh my God, this can't be it. And that's what he said because it's not. And we're seeing that play out even more in his life as it goes on. I mean, and, and it, Gazelle and more super, super Bowls are not going to fill that hole. And we've seen that it doesn't fill that hole. It, some of it's all falling apart. They can't do it because they're temporary. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I can fill that hole. And there's a hole in every one of our hearts. And if anybody's had a chance to stuff everything great in that hole, that's Tom Brady or Tiger Woods. And I know <laughs> I'm an older guy, so I'm coming up with guy examples. But I mean, we can come up with examples in all kinds of areas and all kinds of it, uh, it, men, women. It doesn't matter. There's a hole there. And these things don't fill it. And we're trying, though. We're trying. We just don't have as much to work with as they do. But it's not working for them either. And so what's the deal? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I fill that hole. We get a new heart. And then we can walk in the light, honest and open. Relationships deepen. We walk in community. Think how much easier it is to be loved and have deep community if you're fully known. When you're hiding, you can't. You can't do it. Because you think... You can't receive people's loves because you think what it is is they love this projection of you, this outside thing that you've put on. If they knew the real you, they wouldn't love you. You feel that sometimes? 
that actually just enslaves you further in those things. But if we live these ways we're talking about and we live in light of eternity, nothing can compare to that. We have access to the power that changes people's lives. Nothing else, ha- nothing else can do that. Every parent knows, every parent knows when your little kids are, when your kids are little, you can make them look different. You can dress them up, you know, you can do all this stuff. They can look so sweet, but you know, you, now I'm speaking for myself now, you know the demon that's in there. You know how bad that little kid is, right? But you can dress them up and they look so perfect. Uh, uh, you know, having people, when our kids were younger, you're just like the perfect Christian family. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, only one of us, me. I'm the only one that is like, you know, I'm the only one. <laughs> They're a mess and they get it from her. This is not being live streamed also. Just so you, yeah, I'm getting away with a lot. And I'm hoping we lose the recording. So that's what happened. Gee, we have access to a power that changes people from the inside out, that changes people's heart. This is amazing. Can you imagine? I mean, I feel like when you start to think about that, it's, it's like when they first created the, the, the atomic bomb and they realized what they were messing with how incredible that power was beyond what they'd ever thought. We have a power that's incredible beyond what we've ever thought. And we trade it. We trade it for little trinkets. We trade it for little things that seem good in a short amount of time, but actually do nothing for us in the long term. We trade it away. But when we walk in the light, we live in light of eternity. We have the power to change people's lives forever. That's amazing. That's an amazing privilege. I mean, that's, I began talking about how awesome it is, the stuff we've done over Christmas with our 12 days of Advent and all that stuff. And the idea that we have changed people's lives, quite possibly for eternity. Nothing is better than that. All these things, we can throw our lives away for things that won't mean anything in eternity. Or, we can use our lives to serve people and love people in a way that will change them for eternity. That, if you find anything better than that, go after it all in. But there's nothing like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you at the end of the year, what you have done. In the middle of all the darkness, we see light in all sorts of places. So now, Lord, help us, help us this year to make it our goal to live in the light, to walk in the light, to be the kind of people that others see and are interested in what makes us different. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do that as we love you, worship you, and honor you. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be working in our hearts to change us, that beautiful change from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.